This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Uh, we're Remnant Radio. Remnant Radio is a theology broadcast. We we stream every Monday night at 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. We have lots of pastors and teachers on the program. Some guys we agree with, some guys we disagree with. But the ultimate goal is to dialogue about theology so we can understand God's Word uh, and God who has given us His Word. So uh, we hope you enjoy this program. If you are encouraged by the program, go ahead and to the description of the video. There is a donate button. You can sponsor us there. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Jordan Cooper. I am an ordained Lutheran pastor, uh, but I'm most well-known probably for being the executive director of Justin Center. We're an organization that really promotes um, Lutheran theology, trying to get it at least for free or at a low cost. So we do that through a number of things, publishing uh, our podcast, and we've just started up the Widener Institute where we're offering online courses as well. So um, go to uh, justincenter.org if you want to see more information there. Excellent. Well, hey, I, I've been listening to your podcast for the last couple of what months now and have been fascinated with the content there. I think you've got a lot of really good content on the, the Calvinism and Armenianism bit. Uh, you, your background is from kind of a Southern Baptist, if I'm correct, and you kind of came into the Lutheran perspective. Before we dive into the conversation of Sola Scriptura, maybe tell us a little about your, your background and how that transition's come about. Yeah, no, it's not Southern Baptist. My background is Presbyterian. Presbyterian, um, that's so right. Yeah, yeah. So it is from a uh, from a reformed background. Um, my my family was part of a, a church plant, a Presbyterian church plant. So uh, I went to Geneva College to study theology in a very strict Presbyterian, you know, Westminster standards holding uh, tradition. And while I was there, I began reading the works of Martin Luther, and from there started reading some Lutheran theologians. And so there was a process uh, whereby I was doing a lot of reading and talking with friends and talking with professors over these issues. And uh, my my theological conclusions began to shift, uh, and that led me into the Lutheran tradition. Excellent. Well, uh, we're really excited about dialoguing about the topic of Sola Scriptura. Uh, we do have a word from our sponsor. We're not going to click it just yet, Crew. Uh, but what we'd like to do, uh, maybe you can set up what is the conversation of Sola Scriptura so that people know who are watching before we, we uh, get that word from our sponsor. Go ahead. Yeah, when we're talking about the issue of Sola Scriptura, which is a Latin phrase coming from the, the time of the Reformation, which means Scripture alone, what we're doing is addressing the question of the authority in the church. And not just authority broadly, because we can speak about many authorities in many ways, but we're talking about what is the highest authority? Is there a standard that is that is unique in its role that all other standards or all other authorities in the church have to be held to? So the, the proposition of Sola Scriptura during the Reformation said that the traditions of the church and any other human authority, whether that's human reason or anything else, needs to be held up to the standard of Scripture. And when those things contradict Scripture, it is Scripture that is the ultimate authority over experience or reason or tradition or anything else. Excellent. So uh, we are going to ask follow-up questions on solo, sola, uh, prima scriptura, and all of the alike for those of you who are watching uh, and want to know more about this. But first, we're going to give a quick word for our sponsor. Are you wanting to start a Christian nonprofit, missions organization, or even a church plant? Do you need help setting up the legal side of your ministry so that you can collect donations biblically and according to state and federal laws? Well, the Fellowship Network is here to serve you. For over 50 years, the Fellowship has provided nonprofit tax covering to hundreds of churches, missionaries, and ministries around the world. They provide the expertise to get you and your ministry on a strong foundation, then place you under the legal covering that allows you to accept tax-deductible donations in the United States. They're not a law firm, but a Christian association that equips uh, ministries like you to do the work God has called you to do. So sign up today at thefellowshipnetwork.net and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off your first year of membership. As a matter of fact, we use the Fellowship Network here at Remnant Radio, and they made it fast and easy for us to get started and as a new ministry, and I know they can do the same for you. So sign up at thefellowshipnetwork.net and get 10% off just for being a listener here at Remnant Radio. Get started online today at thefellowshipnetwork.net. 
we're thankful for the Fellowship Network and what they've done to support the channel. If you guys want to support the channel, uh, you can do that in the comment section. But we're going to talk about Sola Scriptura. There seems to be uh, a different ways of articulating this. Uh, some mm. have gotten into the nitty-gritties on Solo Scriptura versus Sola Scriptura. Can, can you maybe weigh in on the clarification of that? Uh, it seems to be uh, kind of a silly, uh, uh, I don't know, speci specification, but what are your thoughts? Yeah, so when we're talking about Sola Scriptura, there really are different perspectives, um, because all of the reformers, whether the Lutheran, Anglican, Reformed, or the Anabaptist reformers, are all claiming to hold to the principle of Sola Scriptura in one form or another. But um, in each of those traditions, they do have different approaches in terms of how to address the tradition of the church. Uh, and so while all of those traditions are going to say that Scripture is is primary and Scripture is the it has a uniqueness that nothing else has, um, there are going to be other interpretations of exactly how that that works itself out. So uh, one example of this is, is if you look at the worship that happens at the time of the Reformation. So if you look at either the, the Lutheran or the Anglican tradition, what you're going to see is those two traditions uh, viewed the Reformation as more of a continuation of the church. And so uh, instead of just kind of throwing out the traditions of the church and saying, let's go back to scripture and kind of start fresh and start new. They're saying, let's purge the church and the tradition mm -hmm. of those things which are opposed to scripture and retain the rest. So I think in, in the way that worship is viewed, there's a difference between the Lutheran and the Anglican traditions on the one hand, and then the reformed, and then kind of even farther to the other kind of rejecting tradition almost side would be, would be the Anabaptists. So um, I, I think that's one way that it works itself out. No, it's not super clear and if you're making this distinction, the solo versus sola scriptura, um, the, the Latin doesn't really work there. But what the idea there is, is uh, solo scriptura is scripture only, it, which is kind of a – I don't know anyone that says they believe in solo scriptura, uh, but it's more of a pejorative thing that people say right. to say, well, you you basically believe that you kind of got to take your Bible out into the woods by yourself and sit and read it without – looking at any what anybody else has to say or what any other Christian has ever said and come to your own conclusions. So um, th that's a problem that is um, a uniquely modern one. Uh, and the reason it's a uniquely modern one is because just the fact of literacy rates and the availability of, of print texts, which was something that was an impossibility in the past. So uh, it, you know, it wasn't the case at the time of the Reformation that everyone just had their own Bible and could all read it for themselves and were going to come up with their own interpretations. Um, so Sola Scriptura doesn't say that, that that's how the church should operate. We do operate within the tradition. We operate within the authorities and structures of, of the church, and there can be debates in terms of how exactly that, that should work itself out. Um, but it's not that – and this is what you know, the, the Roman Catholic – uh, critique is going to be that, you know, all Protestants all are their own popes, right? And the Bible, or the Bible is a paper pope, and everybody gets to just make their own decisions, whatever that, whatever they want to do. Uh, but when you're looking at at the traditions of the Reformation, something that happens within all of those traditions, just to some degree, is they're going to develop confessions of faith, which is to say that they're going to. Um, develop these documents which outline what that particular tradition teaches and how it is that they understand the scripture. The difference between that and how Rome would view their traditions is that scripture always has an authority over these confessions of faith. They are true because they explain what scripture teaches or they summarize the teachings of scripture. You are not using those documents as something that is a higher authority. Uh, they are norms, but they themselves are normed by scripture. So Protestants that are going to be using confessions of faith are not going to be the ones who are accused of, you know, a solo scriptura perspective, uh, for example. I think there's probably a lot more we could say um, on, on that issue as well, but um, they're just kind of the the basic differences of between you know, a kind of historic confessional Protestant approach and what you'd find maybe in some more modern um, evangelical uh, traditions. Okay. And and then the other phrase I want to pull into this is the prima scriptura or prima scriptura. Uh, how does that fit in? How would you define that? 
Yeah, so prima scriptura would mean right the, the primacy of scripture. Uh, and so the confession of prima scriptura basically just says exactly what, what the phrase sounds like, that scripture is the primary authority over all others. And this, you know, this can be in, interpreted in, in some different ways. So the term itself, I think, is, is pretty elastic in terms of how you want to how you want to define it. Um, because if you do look at the, the Lutheran tradition, which is where I'm coming from, I mean, we would definitely say that there is a there's a kind of authority that's there in tradition. Uh, there's even a kind of authority that's there in other things as well. But those things always have to be tested by Scripture. Now, there may be a difference between, say, someone who is um, an Anglo-Catholic and who believes, for example, that uh, we should be able to freely offer prayers to the saints. And they can make the confession that Scripture is still primary, but Scripture never forbids prayers to the saints. Therefore, we should be able to do it. Whereas from a more Lutheran perspective on Sola Scriptura, uh, we would say, while, yes, we affirm the, the goodness of tradition in the church and that the Holy Spirit has, has guided the church in many ways, um, we can't invent ways of worship like worshiping the saints that are not directly derived from scripture. Uh, and that differs still from what would be a more reformed perspective, which is a stricter view, which they speak about the regulative principle of worship, that basically all that can be done in a worship service at all is that which is directly commanded by by the New Testament. Okay. Now, how would you respond to a, uh, a Catholic, for instance, who says, well, hey, the church came first, the Bible came second, particularly the New Testament came second, and the canon wasn't approved until uh, the fourth century. And so, you know, the church had to come together and they had to make these agreements and they had to have these authoritative statements and so on. And if you were going by scripture alone, well, they, they didn't have scripture alone. They just had to have the church and sure they had the old Testament, but the scripture wasn't decided upon, et cetera, et cetera. I know you've heard it many times. I'm curious what you would say to that. Yes. Yeah, I think I get that comment, something like that, on about every YouTube video I post almost immediately. <laughs> I'm glad I, <laughs> I, can feel be, like, I can join that circle there. Yes, yes. It seems like there's, you know, a couple of Roman Catholics waiting on every video for me to post and they, you know. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, that's going to be like the go-to argument, right, is, is well, Scripture, uh, to, have, to have Sola Scriptura, you have to have a canon. And there is no exhaustive list in Scripture itself that says which books are in the canon, right? So, you know, when you open up your Bible and it has the list of books from Genesis to Revelation, that was not in any, you know, of the original texts. Okay. Moses didn't write that down prophetically that these books would be included in the Bible. So um, the, the idea behind the argument then is Rome is saying that the church has to make that decision. So even if you believe in sola scriptura, you are believing something that the church itself did. Now, I think there, there are a, a number of issues with this argument. Um, and Let's just parse out maybe a, f a few of them. Um, one is you still ultimately have the con the question of which tradition, because when you are saying that there is a necessity in terms of going back to um, some kind of overarching magisterium or overarching tradition that put scripture together, um, you do have many churches who do make that claim. So even if I were to grant that it doesn't make Roman Catholicism true, it could be the Eastern Orthodox Church or the Syrian Church of the East or the Coptic Church or the Ethiopian Church who all make make similar claims. So in and of itself, even if you're going to buy that argument, it doesn't prove one particular view, but um, you still have have that to, to hash out. But um, I think the, the main issue is that what it does is portrays a, a, a historical um, view that's not really accurate in terms of history. I would point to someone like Michael Kruger, who has done a lot of work in the canon. And I think what, what you have is a, often a presentation that there is a lot of confusion about which books are actually included in the canon, and there needed to be some early ecumenical council to put those books together. Uh, now, there never was an ecumenical council that was put together in any sense in order to address the issue of of the New Testament canon. Um, so, you know, the Council of Trent is the first of the Roman Catholic councils, uh, um, including the ecumenical councils through the later Western councils, that actually defines definitively a canon of scripture. Now, you do have some North African councils that do define canons of scripture. You also have some other provincial councils that include canons of scripture, which do not have the Apocrypha, for example. Um, so a provincial council does not have the authority an ecumenical council does. So, um, you know, in order for, I think, for the argument to really work well, you would have to, to prove that there was some kind of big debate. Nobody knew what was in the canon, and the church had to get together under the authority of the papacy to 
put together some some list of books. But that's really not what's happening when you look at the history of the early church. What's happening is the church, they're not putting together the canon, but the church is is recognizing what God has inspired. And really, this is just the nature of understanding that Scripture is inspired, is because we have faith that Scripture is is inspired, we also have faith that God would guide his people to know what the books that he has inspired are. So if you're granting – Martin Chemnitz, a Lutheran theologian uh, of the latter 16th century, um, in his examination of the Council of Trent, he goes through different kinds of traditions. And you know he's got tradition one, tradition two, and, and he basically makes this argument that just because you affirm one kind of tradition doesn't prove that all of the traditions are right. So if you're going to affirm that God has in tradition, if you want to use that language – um, perfectly preserved the books that are his word, and he has given Christians a recognition. And this is across the spectrum, right? The New Testament canon is, is the same, whether you're talking about the Roman or the Eastern churches um, or, or Protestant churches, so that God has given this recognition to the church uh, through the power of the Holy Spirit that we know which books are canonical, which books are inspired. But that doesn't mean, that doesn't then mean that therefore God has established an infallible magisterium by which you know, we can interpret scripture only through through the lens of an infallible tradition. Th those two things just don't they don't necessarily go together. And and the the final point that I would make with that argument is, um, it simply doesn't work when you're talking about the Old Testament. Now, uh, and I think this is a really important question, a really important point to make when we're talking about the the relationship between scripture and tradition is, uh, when you look at the the era of of, of Judaism in the time of Jesus, um, which is largely, you know, a Pharisaic Judaism. Uh, you have the Sadducees as well. The Sadducees only accept some books of the canon. They accept the five books of Moses. Now, Jesus, you know, speaking with the Pharisees, and we can look at, at the some of the texts, uh, Matthew 15, he speaks about uh, traditions of men and rejecting those traditions of men. Well, the Pharisees could have actually made the very same argument that that Rome does in terms of the canon. They could have made the argument that, hey, it's our rabbinic traditions that established which books are in, in the canon of scripture. And they could even point to, hey, you've got the Sadducees over here and their traditions don't even have these books in the canon. And you didn't have any council that put those together. There's some people talk about a council of Jamnia, which you know happens later. And there's some debate about whether that's actually a council or, or what the actual deal is with that. But um, so with all of that, it seems like to to say this, that Jesus himself accepts the tradition in terms of how God inspired and preserved those particular texts as the canon of the Jews. He accepts that from the Pharisees. At the same time, he's also rejecting other Pharisaic traditions, which they say were divinely passed on uh, when they contradict that sacred word. So so. So, for Go example, if I, if I might, so you, uh, I've listened to some of your lectures. You made the case, I think, in one of your lectures that uh, Jesus observes Hanukkah, uh, but yes. then subsequently he rebukes them for, uh, they tithe them in cumin, they give away all that they have to the church, and they don't retire their parents. And he says, you're you're actually, uh, uh, you're honoring the traditions of men and, and, and neglecting the weightier matters of the law, right? So, so in, well, I think it's Matthew chapter seven, uh, verses 13 through, I want to say like 18. I might be, I might be guessing here, guys. I am guessing here, guys. Uh, that uh, he says that, well, that Isaiah prophesy of you, you tithe mint and cumin, uh, not, not you tithe mint and cumin, that you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And he talks about how that they will, they have these man-made traditions that they built up and they're actually Right. rejecting God's actual word because of these traditions. So Jesus seemed to to follow traditions uh, when they pointed him right. to God, but then to ignore traditions when they actually nullified scripture. Is that is that a fair articulation? Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And this is one of the reasons that um, the, the Lutheran tradition has rejected the strict reformed regulative principle of worship, um, which says that it has to be directly commanded in scripture in order for you to do it. You know, I have mm -hmm. reformed friends that won't celebrate Christmas because it's not directly divinely commanded. Um, but in reality, we, Jesus does, as you point out, Jesus really demonstrates um, a high regard for tradition. Uh, and he does that in doing things like observing Hanukkah. The fact that he goes to the synagogue to teach, I mean, the synagogue um, is an intertestamental institution, right? God never commanded the Israelites to make synagogues. Uh, and this was a place of, of worship. And it wasn't sinful like the false sacrifices were on you know, other mountains or to other gods. Um, this is something that Jesus himself does. So we have to have a balance between 
accepting those traditions which are good and honoring and acknowledging the fact that the Holy Spirit does guide his people uh, and God does guide us into truth without then making those traditions completely infallible in one form or another. So, uh, and so go ahead. Uh, I, I, I apologize. If I, you have such a wealth of knowledge. Asking a question, I'm getting so much out of you. Uh, <laughs> I've got a follow-up question because it leads really okay. well into this question. One of our viewers, Jew in Greek, uh, he asked the question about the charismatic gifts. You, you articulated just now, mm -hmm. if it doesn't seem to go against Scripture, uh, that we're willing to entertain it possibly. Uh, he, he's asking about these kind of revelatory gifts of the, the Pentecostal charismatic movement, whether it be prophecy or tongues. Uh, not necessarily what do you believe about these things, but but could those things possibly coexist with Sola Scriptura uh, on a definition sort of level? Yeah, that's a really big question, honestly. So I don't know how much I can answer that question okay. <laughs> in a short time. Uh, I feel like we'd have to have a whole a whole discussion just on, on that issue. Um, and especially, you know, as I'm thinking through my uh, even our own tradition and how we look at, at those things, it would probably be a little different from the either the strict reform cessationist views or the charismatic perspectives. Um, I, I do think if it that, helps. We are continuationist on this program. So yes, I, don't, I, I don't know I, if that that helps I, you or if that hurts you as far as context. But yeah, no, I kind of figured that from some of the interviews that I had seen you've, you've done on here as I looked through the <laughs> yeah, before. Yeah, but, uh, you watch Slain in the Spirit and you're like. Yeah, yeah. Um, can you, but the audio just cut out. Can you, uh, hopefully, yeah, it's, cu it's cutting out on your end. I hope you can still, you can still hear me. Okay. If, if you could still hear me, then I'll keep talking and you can figure out what's going on here. Okay. <laughs> That's fine. Uh, yeah. So in terms of the charismatic gifts, I think there is going to be a little bit of a different interpretation because th that is going to impact how you view Sola Scriptura. Um, wh when you do speak about the charismatic gifts, especially something like a con continuing prophecy. And, and from what I understand within the charismatic movement, there, there are a variety of interpretations of that. Now, not any expert by any means in in the charismatic movement or or those those issues. It's just not really an area that I particularly focus on myself. Um, so I don't know how much I can comment on that. But what I can tell you is, um, during the time of the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther was interacting with um, certain Anabaptist groups that he referred to as the enthusiasts, uh, and the enthusiasts did use. What they said was prophetic revelation from God uh, and prophesied all sorts of things which just didn't happen. Um, so so for, from that perspective, uh, I think when you are – especially when you're in a position of believing that there is some kind of prophetic revelation that you know overthrows the teachings of Scripture. You find this with a group like the Montanists, for example, in the early church where you have um, you know, two prophetesses who are are claiming that they're getting this continued revelation and they're they're continuing really the work of the holy spirit and um th this is often done by saying that you know you you can kind of differentiate between two eras and now new revelation can kind of contradict older revelation and this is the kind of view that you find in you know mormonism and other groups so those kinds of revelatory prophetic views would certainly be against sola scriptura because at that point you're not really judging it by scripture but saying my modern day revelations can even overthrow scripture and that's a lot of what what martin luther himself is encountering with with a lot of the Anabaptist groups, especially the more more extreme ones. Sure. Um, so but, let's let's answer Let's ask it this way. And I've got audio back. Yeah. So that, that killed two birds with one stone. Um, uh, <laughs> my, my, my clarification question would be something to the effect of uh, if if prophecy and this is how I'm going to define it is non binding on the conscience. Um, it, it's not when, when, when we when we talk about this, I say teach on this, when we talk about it, um, we're saying uh, when when someone hears a word, uh, whether it be a prophetic word or guidance, they feel like the Lord's leading them to do something or say something, uh, you know, you got that tiered system of does this contradict God's word? Um, we're going to have other right. people examine this and weigh this to see if this is even, uh, does, does this make sense? Is this, you know, the Bible says that a prophecy is to be judged by two or three witnesses. Uh, we would never hold it to scripture on any level. Uh, again, non-binding on the conscience. I don't, I wouldn't view it as sin if someone, you know, didn't follow it. Uh, we're going to make sure that it follows scripture. We're going to make sure that it's submitted to the church. The church is going to figure out how to to exercise this thing, to think about this thing, to meditate on this thing. Uh, it is not going to be that kind of definition of prophecy or prophetic word. Would, you, would that be kind of, that would seem to come in line with Sola Scriptura. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm sure from a you know from a more charismatic perspective, I think that that makes sense what you're sure. saying. I guess the 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 struggle that I have with with this whole question in terms of of prophetic words is the question of, I guess the the category that is something that is prophetic but not necessarily infallible and not binding on the conscience. I guess that's the thing that I struggle with the most in terms of, of figuring out exactly how that works. But, um, but at the same time, I mean, we would definitely say things like, um, you know, there, there are instances of like, you know, John Huss, um, at his death has this prophecy that Martin Luther sees to be about himself. I mean, he interprets it that way. And, uh, people in our tradition def- generally have interpreted this prophecy that he has, um, uh, that's is actually about about Luther. So we do have like some instances of that even with our in our tradition, and that certainly wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't see that as being opposed to sola scriptura, um, uh, and you know, along with that, you know, but I I would also differentiate between things like a, a modern day prophecy as well as maybe kind of an urging from the Holy Spirit, right? So, um, you know, I would say, an example of this would be like a, a pastoral call, you know, when when I received a call to uh, my first congregation, you know, there we differentiate between the external call, which is the church actually offers you the call, but then the internal call of the Holy Spirit. And and um, it was very clear that there is this urging of like need, right? I need to go there. Uh, you know, I wouldn't call that a prophecy, but I would say that that there was an urging and leading of the Holy Spirit. So a lot of this, I think, depend, depends on in terms of how you define your categories and how you're defining prophecy. Um, so yeah, we, we may have a little bit of a different take in terms of just what, what we're categorizing probably as prophecy. That's fair. Um, yeah, yeah. But I think yeah. the, the I mean, I think the, the main point of Sola Scriptura across all of the right Protestant traditions, if you're going to hold to Sola Scriptura, has got to be that every other authority has to be judged and tested by this. Right? I yeah. mean, that, that's the key claim that I yeah, think and- no, no matter how we dif- differentiate between our views, that's going to be the point that we we agree on. Absolutely. Yeah. And I I think for me, being a continuationist myself, what uh, I think one of the big defining scriptures for me in this is 1 Corinthians 14, 37. The Apostle Paul says, if anyone is a prophet or thinks he is a prophet, let him recognize that what I say to you is the Lord's command. So the apostolic word, which for us today is scripture, the apostolic word trumps the prophetic word. And so you, and then you see when Paul's talking uh, in other places, also in first Corinthians 14, just a little bit earlier than that, uh, he talks about the, the others. And there's some debate over who the others are. Is it the elders? Is it the other prophets? But the others mm-hmm. will weigh or discern carefully what is said. Um, then you have first Thessalonians five. It says, don't put out the spirit's fire. Uh, don't despise prophecy. Hold on to the good. Let go of the bad. And so you start to see, at least from my perspective, this sort of, uh, shift as you get to the New Testament, whereas in the in the Old Testament, it's like what Isaiah says, like take it to the bank, you know. Like if Isaiah, if Isaiah tells you to do something, you'd better do it. But then in the New Testament, there seems to be this like take another example, Acts twenty one. Paul feels and uh, Doctor Cooper, I think this is a little bit what you were talking about with the uh, you kind of the urging of the Spirit. You know, uh, Acts uh, twenty, Paul says he's compelled by the Spirit. Then you get to Acts 21, he's prophesied over and over and over again, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem, don't go to Jerusalem. And he's like, yeah, but I'm going to Jerusalem because the Spirit told me to go. And they're like, but the Spirit told us. (laughs) The Spirit told them that he was going to suffer. Yeah. Right? Uh, And then some compelled him not to go. Right. So what happened was that at least it's it's a pretty difficult scripture. My understanding of Acts, Acts 21 is that they, out of like the goodness of their heart, they did not want Paul to go there and suffer. Right. But the Lord told them that he was going to suffer. And so they kind of muddled their prophecy of like, therefore don't go to Jerusalem, kind of mixing an interpretation with an application. Interpretation being Jerusalem's going to be painful. Application, therefore don't go. Mm-hmm. But I guess where I'm running with it, though, is their conclusion at the end is, well, let the Lord's will be done. So it's like Paul's violating their what they perceive to be a prophetic word, and they're like, "Well, maybe we were wrong." So I just see a shift in sort of the New Testament perspective of it. But I I would always come back to it's got to submit to the scripture. So 
and, and I want to give you an opportunity for clarifying, clarifying thought um, to that if, if you would need it. Um, but but I also would love to get into 2 Timothy 3.16 and talking about yeah. the Theonostos, God-breathed nature of Scripture. So I don't want to like this episode to be like dedicated to get to the Spirit because like we've got <laughs> yeah, that yeah. and that's not why we asked you to come on. If you want to address that, you have you have the space. I don't want to say this is what's right and then cut to the next question. So if, if you feel like you want to speak to it, you have the opportunity. But I also love the dialogue about the Theonostos in in Second uh, Timothy three sixteen. Yeah, and I, I'll I'll just the only thing I'll say is this: um, this is the issue that I have avoided addressing on my podcast for the many years that I've done I'm it. So, so glad we were able to pull it out of you. <laughs> we'll, we'll edit those questions out. The, no. the post YouTube editor. That's uh, yeah. No, honestly, actually, I uh, blame our podcast listener who asked that question. Yeah, yeah, that was you and Greek's fault. Yeah, that's that. no, no, no. It's it's a totally valid and good question. Um, yeah, it's one. Of, honestly, it's one of those things I've never really delved into, like a lot of the literature surrounding the you know, the, uh, supernatural gifts. And, um, I, I always try to take, um, the perspective that I, if I don't study something well, I'm not going to speak bluntly on it. Uh, and, uh, I think too many people think they're experts in everything because they're experts in some things. So I, I try not to speak on certain issues that I just feel like I really would have to read more on to really understand other perspectives. So, sure. um, on this particular issue, it doesn't mean I don't have a stance on the issue, but I don't feel like I'm quite well equipped enough in terms of where the literature is at, especially when you're looking at a text like First Corinthians 14 that I can tell you I've wrestled with quite a bit, uh, different in uh, parts of that passage. Um, so <laughs> I don't know how much I can tell you other than there are plenty of people who have studied that issue much more than me that are more qualified to address that particular issue. So I'm going to skirt around it and, and get back. <laughs> God. Hey, thank you for admitting. Because, you know, I, I think that uh, when, when people think that we, we start, people think we, we, when we study scripture, people come to us asking, hey, you've got a theological, theological opinion about this. You've got a scriptural understanding about this. The more theologians that we meet on the show, the more people are willing to say, I don't know. And I yeah. think that's a kind of a sign of spiritual maturity. It's just to say, look, I, I just, I, I can't speak to that issue yet. Like I haven't got to that corner of Wikipedia. I'm just not ready. Okay. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> like maybe one day, but not the second. So let's pick up there. Second Timothy three sixteen, yeah. talking about the Theonostos. So when, when Roman Catholics and, talk, and go ahead. Are you about to define Theonostos for Yeah, everybody? yeah, yeah. For those who are watching. So, so in, in the Roman Catholic tradition, the idea that scripture and, and, and uh, tradition are co-equal uh, in the sense that they're just different levels or different kinds of authority. Uh, the, the, the 2 Timothy 3.16 seems to be like our, our weapon of choice when, when debating uh, this specific mm -hmm. dialogue with Roman Catholics because you actually have to prove that tradition is Theonostos, God-breathed, breathed right. out by God. Uh, and there's kind of a special authority of Scripture. And as you've defined, uh, the church uh, Catholic, the, the unified church, has already agreed on what mm -hmm. Scripture is. So now we have to talk about if that is what Scripture is, uh, is tradition anywhere close to it authoritatively? Yeah, yeah. So that's a big, uh, it's a big question and a really important text for this this whole um, debate. And, and one thing I do want to say is we we discuss a little bit about like how the church receives scripture rather than defining what scripture is. Um, I mean, there is debate, right? There is some some level of debate. Right. Uh, so it wouldn't be honest to say that there's no debate. We have a distinction between what's called the the home legumina and the antilegumina. Uh, Eusebius comes up with that term, uh, and the antilegumina defines these. Books that there was a little bit of dispute about. Um, I think the debate about those books is very much often overstated, uh, but mm -hmm. the distinction does exist. Um, so that would include books like James, um, Hebrews, right. Revelation, Second and Third John. So, and and Second Peter would be one as well. So there there is a little bit of debate, and there are in the New Testament. You know, there are a couple instances of people listing canon that include First Clement or the Shepherd of Hermas. There are very obvious reasons when you read those books uh, to set them aside and recognize they're not inspired, as I think God led the church to recognize. Um, they're, they're very, very clear reasons. So um, with that being said, there's there's a little bit of dispute. And then the issue of the Apocrypha is a whole other discussion as well, because that, that one I think is a little more complicated. But, um, you know, regarding... Um, tradition in, in John, or sorry, uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. Um, so when you're talking about this passage, right, this, 
in that that particular term that you're bringing up, theopneustas or theonustas, as you're as you're pronouncing it. But um, so that, it's like humble, like rebuked, like no, uh, I, the way you're <laughs> pronouncing it is kind of like a Texan, and not much like a theologian. But I'll, I'll take it. Go ahead. No, no. <laughs> um, we're all guessing with our Greek pronunciation anyway, so it doesn't matter. Um, it's fine. Um, so that that particular passage uh, comes up because it does show that there's something unique about scripture. And what what the Roman Catholic is going to say, and this is kind of the popular Catholic apologist retort is, well, the Bible never teaches sola scriptura. And if sola scriptura is true, then all you believe is what's taught in scripture. And if it doesn't say sola scriptura, then you can't believe sola scriptura is true. Therefore, your whole argument is self-refuting. Well, you know, that, that's not really the, the place we're arguing. I mean, you don't have to find uh, one singular text that says, by the way, scripture is the only thing that is true and nothing else is. Mm -hmm. uh, or scripture is the only, yeah, the only thing that's an infallible rule of faith and practice. Tradition is not. Uh, and we would say exactly the opposite, that what scripture says is that it has this unique character of being God-breathed, and it's up to someone else to prove that there's something else that's God-breathed, right? So we would say it's up to you to prove that there's something else that has this level of authority. Uh, and there is that language in 2 Timothy 3.16, uh, which in verse and in verse 17, uh, which speaks about the man of God being complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So there is this um, this idea that the role of scripture, because of its nature as God breathed, is that which is going to equip you to mm -hmm. do every good work, right? And every good work, um, I think we can see as all of the things that he talks about before, doctrine, reproof, reproof <laughs> correction, instruction, and righteousness. So um, with, with all of those things, the man of God may be thoroughly equipped in every good work, which includes that instruction and teaching. Um, and so if there is any text that says sola scriptura, well, it doesn't say those exact words. It does say that it is God-breathed, it has this unique nature that nothing else has, and also that it is capable and does make one sufficiently or thoroughly equipped to do all of these things. Uh, and so that's really all that Sola Scriptura is saying, uh, is really everything that is, I think, summarized very well in this, in this passage. So not only authority, but sufficiency. So it's authoritative yes. in the sense that it is uh, it is binding on the conscience. It's authoritative in the sense that it's the supreme rule of authority, uh, but it's also sufficient in that everything that we need to obey for salvation, everything we need to uh, to have to have a knowledge, a right knowledge of God, uh, as Jesus would say, I think it's John seventeen three, eternal life is to know God and Jesus Christ yep. whom He sent. The scriptures are sufficient to reveal the character and nature of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. So everything we, there, there's yes. certainly more to be known. But everything that is sufficient mm -hmm. for knowledge that has been given to us by God is found in the scriptures. Okay. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So it is, and that's exactly what's said here, is that it is so that man of God may be thoroughly or sufficiently equipped for for all of these things. So um, it is sufficient. And that's why Sola Scriptura is often defined as speaking about the sufficiency of scripture. Mm -hmm. uh, and as you point out, that doesn't mean that scripture does everything. It doesn't mean that scripture speaks to every single thing in the universe. You know, we don't learn about quantum mechanics from scripture. Um, you don't learn about how to build a car from scripture. You know, there are plenty of things that scripture is just not written to, to, to tell us about. But when it comes to issues of doctrine and authoritative doctrine and teaching and the way of salvation and what it means to live as God's people in obedience to him, all of those things are explained in Scripture, and for those things, we don't need to go to outside sources. Uh, it all can be found there. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't use outside sources. It doesn't mean that we should never read a book outside of Scripture uh, that is a Christian book or never use a confession of faith. Uh, but Scripture in and of itself is sufficient by itself to do all of those things. Okay, so I'm going to play just like Roman Catholic here, and I'm just going gonna, gonna to throw Please. out some verses, and you just— Tell me, I, I don't know. I'm just going to throw some stuff out. Okay, so I hear what you're saying, but uh, it sounds to me like if it's sola scriptura, what do we even need teachers for? And you've got uh, certain scriptures, for instance, that are hard to understand. And and even Peter admits that some of Paul's uh, mm -hmm. writings, his scriptures, Second Peter chapter 3, I think it is, so, uh, some of Paul's scriptures are hard to mm -hmm. understand and people twist it. And so we need... Uh, an authoritative church teaching. Otherwise, you're going to get all these people twisting, and that's why you have 38,000 Christian near Protestant denominations, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> of so, course, yeah. Um, okay, but I'm, I'm being a Catholic, so I'm going to just throw it all out there, <laughs> and you can you can respond. Okay, so we need people to train us. I mean, the Ethiopian eunuch, he was reading the Scripture, and he needed somebody 
to explain it. We need an authoritative uh, church witness, and and um, and then uh, even with uh, when it, uh, I think of Ephesians chapter four. It's it's not just the scripture that prepares me to do every good work. I need apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to train the saints to do the work of ministry. And so we need the human to step in. And then you've got. Of course, there's Matthew 16 and the uh, and you know Peter, the first pope, and upon this rock I will build my church, and uh, and the things that you know what, what's bound on earth will be bound in heaven, and loosed on earth will be loosed in heaven, and so and so this speaks to that gap where we need a human authority in cooperation with God to make these sort of binding statements and to direct the doctrine of the church so that. By the time Jesus returns, we don't have 473,000 Protestant denominations. All right, there you go. Uh, I don't know how I'm going to respond to all of that. That was a bunch of things. Okay, Literally every uh, Catholic question in the debate. I know. It really, really was. Uh, I can tell you've listened to quite a, quite a bit. Uh, those I are the usual. I just shotgun blasted. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's okay. If you missed uh, one or two, that's all right. See if I can even remember what all of the things are. Yeah, the, okay. it's usually that that 33,000 denomination number, uh, which people throw out, which is an inaccurate number. I mean, Roman Catholic apologetics blogs can point out the errors because um, it's just it's just a false number. Okay. And for many reasons, um, it, it includes like some independent churches, it includes cults, it includes all sorts of things. So they just want to blow it up to make it sound as ridiculous as possible. Remnant radio is actually a denomination, according to for that sure. study. <laughs> yeah, probably, probably is. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. Uh, so they want to blow it up to make it sound as ridiculous as possible. So that that's one thing. Um, and, you know, the other thing in terms of this, uh, the question of unity, too, and, and I think we do have to recognize that there is a big issue of unity uh, in, in the church today. I, I don't think we can es escape it by being like it's not saying it's not a problem. I think there is a problem with the fact that um, in our culture today, especially in an American culture, we do have a very much kind of pick your own style mentality. Um, we just, just the mentality of Americans in general is, uh, if, if you maximize the amount of choices you have, you maximize liberty and thereby maximize happiness. I mean, the mm -hmm. whole idea is wrong, but that has impacted how we view church. And so we do see kind of consumer driven churches or churches that say, well, this is for this kind of person. And this is for this kind of person. And, you know, if you're this age, you go to this church. And if you wear these kind of clothes, you're like this kind of music, you go to this church and, and that kind of thing that kind of division is really bad. So I think it, on the one hand, we do have to kind of acknowledge when Roman Catholics say that, that there is a problem. Because I, I don't think it helps to be like, no, there's no problem at all. This is great. Um, we do have an issue and unity is an issue. But the question is, I, I think the broader question in terms of, of unity there is, Jesus did pray for the unity in the church. But the but the question we have to ask is, how did he how did he desire unity? Was it institutional unity that Jesus desired? When he was praying for unity in the church, was it that we would all be under one bishop of Rome? Um, or is it that we would have a unity in Christ and a unity in the faith? So um, the way that, for example, confessional Lutherans, which is the tradition I'm part of, um, for example, I'm part of a, a, a denomination called uh, the American Association of Lutheran Churches. We're very small. We're in full fellowship with the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod. Okay. Um, people always ask me, why don't you guys join the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod? They're way bigger than you. And we say, we don't want to join them. We're in fellowship with them. We do plenty of things with them. But we don't see that to have unity, it's a necessity to be part of the same structure or have the same bishops or the same organizational unity in the same sense that Rome does. So that that's just addressing that part of the question. I think we have to step back and say, what kind of unity is it that we that we need or that we're looking for? Um, because I think the fractioning of the church is a problem. OK, but it's a question of how do we address it? Uh, I'm not convinced that, that Rome addresses it either. But so that's that's one point. Um, the other points uh, in, in terms of, you know, why do we have teachers in the church and why do we have, you know, things like that? Um, I think, you know, solus, again, this goes back to that distinction we talked about at the beginning between solo scriptura and sola scriptura. And uh, so sola scriptura does not say that there should be no teachers or there should be no authorities. There should be. This is why we send people to seminary. This is why we have ordination, which is something that God, you know, did uh, indeed institute. So, um but we ha but we have a higher authority by which we can judge those teachers. So it doesn't mean you throw out the authority of the teacher, but if you have a pastor that's teaching things that sound a little crazy, you you can then look to that higher authority that is scripture and judge whether what he's teaching is true or not. Uh, and, and now that doesn't mean you have to listen to every 
you know, sentence your pastor says in a sermon and critique everything he says. Um, but, but there is certainly a place for going to that higher authority when the other lower authorities that are real authorities have, have deviated from it. So, so there's that part of the question. The, go, go ahead. ahead. Go, okay. I, yeah. I think the I, last follow up a question okay. for you. It's, it's a little bit different. It's, it's not in this vein. I apologize. I want you to finish your thought before I ask you the next question. Okay, yeah. So I want to address the the other question of the the time period of the apostles, and this is something that's very very important when you're looking at how um, the apostles are are addressing issues and the authority of the apostles in the New Testament. We have to recognize the uniqueness of the time period in which the apostles are living. We have living apostles. Uh, the New Testament is not written in the time period where the New Testament is not written. Um, the apostles are the authority, just like the prophets were the authority in the Old Testament. Right. It's not like you only had to listen to Isaiah when the book of Isaiah was written. No, when he was speaking, it was the prophetic, infallible word of God, and you had to listen when he was speaking prophetically. So uh, the same is, is the case in the time of the apostles. The question is, what is our authority now after the death of the apostles, right? After John the apostle died, when now we have this canon of New Testament books, where do we look? Okay, where do we look for authority now in that era? That's that's the question because that's where we're living now. Jesus isn't walking here with us like he was in time of the apostles. So the Roman answer to that is going to be the successors of the apostles, whereas we would say the writings of the apostles, mm -hmm. right? So it, it doesn't really answer the question one way or another to point out the fact that the apostles are speaking authoritatively, and they even talked about traditions that they handed on to the churches. Uh, and, you know, Rome takes those and says, well, look, traditions, therefore Rome, uh, you know, are, are traditions that have been pre preserved in the magisterium. But, you know, to say that, uh, you know, I, it just, it doesn't say that in the text. There's nothing in the text that implies this is a tradition that is passed down to the Bishop of Rome or through the church or, or in any other way. These are the traditions that the apostles themselves gave. And if you look at someone like uh, Irenaeus, he was writing at the end of the second century, um, he speaks about, he uses that kind of language of traditions and defines what those traditions are against the Gnostics, who he's, he's writing against in his book Against Heresies. And he defines those traditions as basically what you find in the Apostles' Creed. In other words, it's a summary of the faith that is completely encapsulated in the New Testament itself. So this isn't, you know, additional dogmas or something like that. Um, and then the fi the final thing I want to bring up, because that was a lot, and then I'll go to your question. But the final thing that, that I want to say is um, when you're talking to someone who's you know from a Roman Catholic tradition, uh, they, Roman Catholicism does not answer any of these problems because Roman Catholicism is kind of a mess um, in, in terms of doctrinal issues, in terms of where the church is, in terms of practices of the mass. Um, you know, I think what people go – people who leave Protestantism for Rome – what they're looking for is a couple of things. One is tradition and history, which is something that we've lost generally in our culture, which I think is, is a big problem. Um, and I would like to see people return to a more historic, uh, more confessional Protestantism, Lutheranism, hopefully, of course, from my perspective. But, uh, <laughs> now that we all have to be under the same denomination, as explained earlier, you know, we can all be different yeah, yeah. Lutherans, but, but as long as we're Lutherans. Exactly, exactly. Okay. <laughs> That's the goal, right? Um, yeah, so... <laughs> so I, I, I threw you off with that one. Sorry. <laughs> I know. No, no, you're fine. So there's the the other aspect is and it's also getting late here. It's eleven o'clock here because oh I'm on Easter Standard Time. I'm so no, sorry. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's, no, it's it's totally fine. Um, I don't sleep anyway. Who needs that? Um, <laughs> so sorry. The other part of it is they're they're looking. They see the 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 fracturing in the church, which is as I said, a real problem. And what looks attractive to Rome is here's a unified church. Everyone feels like they can have their own opinion, their own view of everything. Everybody in our culture thinks they're an expert on everything because they can you know, write a blog about it or whatever. Um, so this is a problem for the church. And Rome looks attractive in that way because they have institutional unity. But I say that's all they have is institutional unity. Because if you look at theologians in the church, I mean, there are very opposed views. I mean, I've you know, I've watched, you know, priests on Twitter kind of anathematize each other in Roman Catholicism. You know, it's not like they're all on the same page. Um, right. And, you know, my traditionalist Roman Catholic friends are very upset about people like James Martin or the Pope himself and things that he said. Uh, and I think what you see, and this is what Luther saw at the Reformation, is there just isn't that consistency. I mean, the idea sounds nice in theory, 
But when you actually look at the details and you look at the history and, you know, you can't tell me that the guys who, you know, wrote the canons of the Council of Trent had the same theology as, you know, Karl Rahner or somebody that was, you know, involved in Vatican II. It's just, it's not the same theology. So it sounds great to say you have this consistency over these many centuries and you have this consistency under the, the papacy. Um, but I think you end up really in the same place you do in Protestantism too. You just, division, I mean, t to some degree, I think we have to just end up saying like, this is just a result of sin, that there's division and people disagree. And right are confused. I, I you know, I, I think we just have to come to that perspective. And I think when you're looking for this kind of perfect ideal church, you're just not going to find it realistically. Yeah. And I would probably not for this episode, we'll have to do this on another one, but the joint declaration of justification and the council of Trent yeah. and how those things work themselves out. I'd love to get your thoughts on that one day. Um, when, when talking about this subject of sola scriptura and the authority of scripture, those kinds of things, uh, Dawson, uh, DJ in the, in the, comments he asked this question could you speak on the difference between the causative and authority uh, sorry causative authority and normative authority i think that's like a lutheran conversation yeah um yeah i'm not sure exactly actually to be honest what that distinction is precisely um okay. or what's no worries, <laughs> what, i've got i've got, I've got another question for you if, if, if yes, you want to toss another question that's fine uh, uh nate perez could you point out and the argument from silence to say that people who say the Bible doesn't say sola, sola scriptura, therefore sola scriptura is wrong. If if we're only going to believe in scripture alone, uh, and scripture is going to be our authority and it's going to be binding on our conscience, but the Bible doesn't actually say sola scriptura, why do we actually follow sola scriptura? Is it circular? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's going to be the argument, right? So th that's kind of what I address with this passage of 2 Timothy 3.16 is we, you don't have to have a passage that says sola scriptura. What you have what you have is a passage that defines the unique role and authority of scripture. Right. And, you know, they're saying, well, the burden is on you to prove that, that something else isn't infallible. Well, I, I don't think so at all. I, I think the burden is on someone else to say there is, there has to be, you know, you have to demonstrate that there is something else that has the same infallible God-breathed authority. And when you look at the traditions of Rome, I certainly don't think it meets the test because it, it is uh, full of, of contradiction and inconsistency within itself that scripture is simply not. Uh, okay, so we've had several people commenting about the Lutheran confessions and, uh, you know, one person commenting that, you know, if you if you break with that, con that if you break with that confession, you're no longer Lutheran, it, it kind of making the argument that it's, maybe equated with scripture to you guys because it feels like, uh, hey, these confessions are inerrant. You can't break with them. Uh, so uh, how would you respond to somebody maybe uh, coming against the sort of idea of your of Lutheran confessions uh, being equivalent with scripture and authority? Yeah, sure. Um, this, uh, you know, this this is a good question. I, I know that um, Charles, the Lutheran theologian Charles Krauth, who has a book called The Conservative Reformation and His Theology, I, I believe it was him that at one point said, um, as soon as you believe that Scripture teaches something that is not in the Lutheran confessions, but still hold to that doctrine, you are no longer a Lutheran. Uh, and, and, and he says that because it is the Lutheran principle, ultimately, that we do go back to Scripture as the ultimate authority. With that being said, um, so we're not setting up the confessions as some higher authority or equal authority to Scripture. Um, with that being said— Within the Lutheran tradition, there there are two views in terms of how our confessional documents are viewed. Uh, one is the quia subscription, one is the quatenus subscription. So the distinction between those terms is uh, quia means um, because, or it's this idea that we believe in the confessions because they agree with scripture. Um, quatenus means insofar as, and this view says we agree with the confessions insofar as they agree with scripture. Now, here's the problem with that insofar as or that quatenus subscription, because on the one hand, it sounds, it sounds nice because it says, well, scripture is a higher authority. We can correct the confessions with scripture. Um, and that, that sounds all well and good in, in terms of our view of sola scriptura and things like that. But the, the thing is anyone can hold to any confession and say, we hold to it insofar as it agrees with scripture. I mean, I could say I, I agree with the Book of Mormon insofar as it agrees with Scripture, because right. when it agrees with Scripture, it's right, right? So so to, to do that with a confession kind of negates the point of the confession. Yeah. So for a Lutheran to hold to a quia subscription to the Book of Concord is not to say that it has the same authority as Scripture, but is to say 
that we believe that what is taught when it's making these doctrinal points throughout, um, you know, we believe that it is teaching what scripture teaches. So it is a norm, but it is a normed norm. Okay. So scripture norms all other authorities in the church. Now we have accepted the Lutheran confessions as an authority because we believe that they consistently teach what scripture itself says. Okay. But that doesn't mean we don't do things like, um, you know, it doesn't mean that Every statement in the entire book of Concord is always correct at all times. What we're talking about is in terms of the theological points and controversies that are going on, we believe they explain them correctly in accord with Scripture. Um, we don't believe um, – for, for example, there's a statement that says that um, you know, garlic demagnetizes magnets, which people point out. Like that's – whether that's, that's right or not um, – it doesn't. I wasn't expecting that to come into our conversation today. <laughs> that was not <laughs> the biggest. I, I know. Yeah, it, it's a little weird, so, but it, or, or like, uh, you know, not not as weird of an example, but um, Saint Prosper of Aquitaine's book, The Call of All Nations, is cited in the Apology of the Oxford Confession, and it's said that Saint Ambrose wrote it. We know that Saint Ambrose didn't write it. Does that right. mean because I'm a Lutheran, I, you know, so we're not treating it like scripture, right? We're not saying that like it's inerrant in every historical and scientific thing that it says. We're saying that when it's dealing with those doctrinal controversies, which are the reason that it's written, what it says on those doctrinal issues is we believe what scripture ultimately teaches so, on those issues. Let, let me, let's, let's be fair with this. I, it, you, there's other denominations out there that have 16 fundamental truths. And if you want to be a part yep. of their denomination, pastor in their churches and or be members uh, to really be a part of their denomination, you have to adhere to those 16 fundamental truths. Now, they would acknowledge that people outside of their denomination are saved and Christian brothers and right. love the Lord, but they are not within their denomination. You're just suggesting that right. the confessions are that for Lutherans. They are the statements yeah. of faith to be Lutheran. It's not to be Christian. Now, you do believe right. that they are true or else you wouldn't believe them. Is that fair? Yeah, yeah. You know, we're not saying we're not saying that, you know, you have to believe in the Lutheran confessions to be saved. You know, we're not <laughs> trying to uh, you know, justification by Christ, Lutheran confession. The, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Right. So, so, yeah, no, no, of course not. Um, so, yeah, so we're, we're saying that and this is an issue of, you know, when you're calling a pastor to to a congregation, right, you, you want to know that the pastor is going to teach what you think is scriptural. Right. Right. And so if you're a church that has certain views, if you, you know, look at Luther's small catechism and the Augsburg Confession, the primary, which are the two kind of primary documents for Lutheran churches, um, this is what all the people in the church believe scripture teaches. You're not going to be too happy if a pastor comes in and says, well, I believe that um, only believers should be baptized and I'm going to stop baptizing your infants. Right. right. In a congregation that believes that's biblical, you can't do that. So. Uh, and it would be the same case the other way around. I'm sure if a pastor came into a Baptist church and said, I'm going to start baptizing all your babies, they probably wouldn't be too happy either. So um, to some degree, we have to do that. And I think there is – every church has – whether you've written it down or not, like right. you've got a confession of faith. Right. It just depends. on Like are you aware of it and writing it down or not? Uh, right. Because even those churches that claim that you know, they have no creeds, they've still got stances on things very right. clearly. Okay, I got a great question from the Christian skeptic. He talks about, must you believe in inerrancy to adopt sola scriptura? Is inerrancy necessary to believe in sola scriptura? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. Um, and I, I say that as one who believes in inerrancy. Um, but um, no, I, I don't think so. Um, because, I mean, the, the other perspective, right? If you're going to take someone who, you know, holds to who makes the distinction between infallibility and inerrancy and says, you can hold to, I hold to infallibility, but not inerrancy. Okay. Quoting someone else. This is not me just to be clear. Um, cause I do believe in inerrancy, but, um, if they say that what they're, they're still making the confession that they believe that scripture is the ultimate authority in terms of what it says about doctrine and practice, but they're usually making a distinction between that and, you know, maybe historical facts or something or scientific facts that are in scripture. Um, now you have additional questions there in terms of like, well, but doctrine and history are very much intertwined. I mean, because, you know, the whole Christian faith is, is dependent on historical fact. So, um, so that definitely gets kind of iffy there, but certainly there are plenty of people who would say that they do not believe in inerrancy that also believe in, you know, sola scriptura. So, uh, you know, someone like N.T. Wright, I think he pretty clearly believes in the supremacy of scripture, but does not hold to biblical inerrancy. Um, so while I would find, I would disagree with that position, I, I don't think that um, it necessitates an abandonment of sola scriptura. Right. Okay. So s since I guess I can't, 
ask just one question. Well, you know, I, I'm just going to make that one question. Okay, Matt, <laughs> I'm going to make this simple for you. Uh, Matthew 16, authority of the Pope. This obviously speaks into the issue in a big way okay. for Catholics. Can you speak into that for us? Yeah, Matthew Matthew 16 um, is kind of the key text, right? The um, where the giving of the keys of the kingdom of heaven happens. Um, and yes. right. so, um, you know, th this t and there are many ways that, that Roman Catholic apologists um, deal with this text. But basically, you've got starting in verse 13, the story where Peter, you know, comes um, where Jesus comes to Peter and he says, who do you say? You know, who do you say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And then this next phrase is kind of the key point for the papacy. And also I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So what you have here is this instance of the giving of the keys of the kingdom, which is defined as the binding and loosing of sins. So the retaining of sins as well as the, the forgiving of sins, that is the authority of, of the church. And this is given to the church as the mission of the church, proclaim the forgiveness of sins. Um, but the question here is, in the way that Rome interprets this, and this is, by the way, not the way the earliest church fathers interpret this passage, which I think is very interesting. And there's reasons why the Eastern fathers particularly have never held to this interpretation of, of this particular passage. Uh, and so for the Roman claim to be true, though, what Jesus has to be saying is, I have the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I am giving them to you, Peter. You are the head of the church now. You are the first pope. And these keys will be passed on to your successors as the infallible authorities in the church. Like the text doesn't say any of that. There are a lot of things that you have to read into that. All it says is this thing called the keys of the kingdom of heaven are given to Peter, um, but they are given to the church. Now, the question here then is, because he says you are Peter and upon this rock, and you have this kind of play on words, Petra, Petros. So there's a connection between Peter's name and the rock that the church is built on. And Rome will say that Peter is the rock by which the church is built. Therefore, the church is built on the foundation of Peter and his successors, i.e. the papacy. Um, the text simply doesn't say that. I do think it's interesting that, that Jesus actually switches. He says in, in his language, because he says, you are Peter, but he doesn't say upon you, I will build my church, but he says upon this rock, I will build my church. Now, textually, it's very clear that he's playing off of Peter's name. I mean, that's not a coincidence. OK, um, there is it is a slightly different term that is being used. They're going to point out, well, in Aramaic, it would have been the same term. I don't know. It doesn't really matter because the text is written in Greek, not Aramaic. It's silly to make an argument from what may have been said in the original language of Jesus. I just don't think that that really is how you make a textual argument for anything. Um, but. So he doesn't say, upon you I will build my church, but upon this rock, which follows the confession that Peter gives. So it's Peter's confession that uh, Jesus is the Christ. It's that confession which then will be the foundation of the church. Now, Peter also does get the keys first because he is the leader of the apostles. I mean, he he is. Uh, you know, he's— he is the kind of first in place of the apostles, in a sense. Matthew 18, though, Jesus then gives the keys of the kingdom to the rest of the apostles. John chapter 20, Jesus then speaks about the same idea. He doesn't use that phrase of the keys, but he speaks about forgiving sins on earth being forgiven in heaven. So what begins with Peter, because he is the one who confesses Jesus as the Christ, he is kind of the spokesperson for the apostles. It makes sense that he's given them first, but it's not exclusively given to Peter. It's given to the apostles, and they are representative of the church. So there's nothing in the text that speak about the keys of the kingdom of heaven that then show in any way that this is something that is being passed down to the successors of the apostles who themselves are bishops. Um, now, the development of the office of bishop is another is another question, really. But um, but I, I do think that it is interesting that when Ignatius writes to Rome in the second century, he doesn't mention there being a bishop in Rome, which would be very weird if Peter was seen as the head of the church and the bishop of Rome was seen as the rock upon which the church was built. And you have Ignatius, who is 
a church father who's writing a lot about the authority of bishops and greets all the other bishops that the pope is in Rome, the head of the church, and he doesn't even mention his name. It, it just doesn't really seem to fit historically. So it, it's there's a lot that you need to, I think, assume in the text and import into the text for the Roman interpretation to be correct. That's great. Hey, so we've got to wrap up the show because we're going to sleep deprive you hardcore. So I, I'm so thankful <laughs> that you've come on the show. You've done such a great job uh, answering our questions, the questions of our audience. We want to thank you for coming on. I'm going to give you a second. Uh, I'm going to I'm going to give you an opportunity to kind of plug your ministry again. Tell us how do they connect with you. I've watched, listened to, I should say, listen to your podcasts on on Sola Scriptura, on what's going on in the Lutheran Church as far as authority of Scripture. I've listened to you uh, do a dialogue about. Uh, how philosophy has affected the way that we view scripture uh, throughout the mm -hmm. history. And it's really phenomenal content that I would highly recommend other people to pick up. Uh, and I'll, maybe I'll put some links to some of those uh, episodes in the description so you guys can go pick that up. Uh, but before we do that, I want to give everyone an opportunity to do some closing thoughts. So, Michael, do you have any closing thoughts for today's episode? Okay. Uh, yes, Dr. Cooper, just want to, first of all, thank you so much for coming out. Uh, amazing job. The way you articulate your faith is incredible and, and helpful for me and, and all of us. So thank you. And, uh, and yeah, you know, one thing I just, uh, I love is that you, uh, is that you in arguing for sola scriptura, you, you emphatically make the point that this doesn't mean there aren't other authorities. Like I, I hear you using that word tradition quite a bit, not as this sort of like, we have to get rid of all tradition, uh, right. but rather, Hey, tradition is good. And we should look to the church fathers and we should, uh, we should, uh, seek what what is the tradition saying, and so I, I think that sometimes a a straw man that the Roman Catholic side can build is that like hey everybody just chalks tradition, and so I think uh, I I heard you mention even though you didn't mention it by name the Wesleyan quadrilateral um, scripture tradition reason experience I don't think I don't I don't know if you said experience but anyway um, but that all of them speak into it it's just that it's first and foremost. And the final authority is scripture. So uh, anyway, love love what you're bringing to it. Thank you so much. Yeah, and and uh, so for those of you who are watching, again, uh, we are going to put some links to Dr. Cooper's stuff. I want to give him a, an opportunity to have some closing thoughts if he's got anything that he'd like to wrap up our conversation with and then also tell us a little about your show. Uh, but if you want to kind of do a primer on this discussion, our buddy uh, Dawson, who's done a lot of the research for our show, he's going to be sending, he's got a, do a document. It's in my email. I'll put it in the description right after this live video. Uh, we had so many technical difficulties. So I just wanted to thank you guys for staying so patient. Thank you, Dr. Cooper, for staying patient uh, as we got all this set up. This evening and got a little bit late to the broadcast. But so Dr. Cooper, let's go ahead and give you your, your closing thoughts and then how do people connect with you in your ministry? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I guess I guess in closing, uh, yeah, I appreciate the, the comments that, that you made there. Um, yeah, in closing, I think we do just have to understand Sola Scriptura really in the sense that, that it was intended by the Reformers, which is not scripture and throwing out everything else out, you know, and I think you bring up that, you know, Wesleyan quadrilateral, quadrilateral of, you know, reason, experience, tradition, um, and all of these things are very much God-given things. It's just a matter of using them in the right sphere and in the right way, right? Reason is good too, uh, but you need to use reason in the right way. And this is another distinction that Lutherans make is between a magisterial and ministerial view of reason. In other words, reason is not over scripture. You don't get to say that doesn't make sense, so therefore I'm going to change what scripture means. But it submits itself to Scripture and says, you know, reason is a good gift that God gave us to, you know, reason is something you need to understand words in a sentence that are in Scripture. So, um, but that's true with with any of these things. They're they're God given. They're good gifts. But nothing else has this unique authority that Scripture has. There is something um, unique about this as something that is God-breathed from the very mouth, breath of God himself. And there simply is nothing else that, that has that kind of authority that, that we have direct access to, as does Scripture itself. Um, so with that being said, um, yeah, if you want to find my stuff, you can go to justandsinner.org. I've got links to everything there. I've got a YouTube channel, podcast, um, books that I've written. I've written seven books. My dissertation is going to be published uh, this year as well. Uh, and I also republish and edit some old Lutheran works also. So go ahead and check those out. Excellent. Well, again, thank you so much for coming on. And for you guys who are watching, I tune into Remnant Radio every Monday night at 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. We have different pastors and teachers coming on the show, dialoguing about various theological topics from different denominations and traditions so that we can better understand God's word, so that we can understand the God who wrote his word. I uh, hope to see you guys next Monday night, 8.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. You guys be blessed.
I want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek and Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description, and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.